Well, good evening. Man, so little uh, behind the scenes info for you guys. Generally, if you're uh, getting the opportunity to speak up here, a few days before you speak, Whitney's going to contact you and she's going to ask you if you have any songs that would go well with your message. Well, this time I had nothing. Wait till you see how good that last song goes with this message. God is good. I mean, it's going to, I couldn't have picked a better one myself. Um, I'm going to have trouble getting back on track now. Oh, okay. I should probably start with who I am. My name's Steve. Uh, if, if we haven't met, I'd like to meet you. I'd like to meet you at your service. I, uh, I like meeting new people. If I have met you and you're thinking two weeks in a row, don't worry. That's just how the schedule worked out. You're going to get a break from Steve after tonight, all right? Uh, but tonight we are starting a new series. It's kind of a continuation of a series that we did last year. Last year we did a series on spiritual warfare called Suit Up. Uh, it was based on Ephesians chapter 6, putting on the full armor of God, protecting ourselves against spiritual attacks. I think there's a playlist on YouTube. If you haven't seen it, you should definitely go check that out. But this series is also a series on spiritual warfare. Uh, but instead of just protecting ourselves from it, this series is going to be about how to spot it and how we react to it. And we are going to uh, figure that out through the story of Job. Uh, if you've read Job, then you know that it's a little long. But we're going to cram this into five weeks, and we, we, we think we've got a good way of doing it. What we're going to do is we're going to break it down by theme or by, like, act, instead of trying to go chapter by chapter and verse by verse. So that's what we're doing for the next five weeks. Um, before we actually get into, like, reading verses, I want to take a minute to just, like, nerd out for a second. I have it on Good Authority Wednesdays is the appropriate time for nerding out. So if you're into this sort of thing and you know how I do way too much information, this is right up your alley. If you want to check out for a little bit, I'll like wave you back in when we start getting to verses, all right? But the, because uh, this is the introduction, I think there's so much about this book that makes it great that's not necessarily written on the pages. I wanted to take a minute to talk about some of those things before we get started. Number one, Job is considered one of the great written works, not just of the Bible, but of all time. It is studied in secular literary arts classes. It is very, very highly um, reviewed and uh, commended by famous authors. The example that I have here is Victor Hugo. If you don't know who that is, he wrote The Hunchback of Notre Dame and Les Miserables. John, John Cleish, how'd I do? We'll work on it. We'll work on it. We'll work on it. <laughs> but Victor Hugo says this. He says, tomorrow, if all literature was to be destroyed and it was left to me re to retain only one work, I should save Job. So that's how highly considered this book is. The next thing that I want to nerd out about is... The authorship, the date it was written, and the date it takes place is hotly debated. Well, as hotly as historical theologian debates go. <laughs> but you can ask my wife, I love to debate. I debate everything. I debate all the time. So I had to get in there and find out what all the, the hubbub was about. But basically it breaks down into two views. There's a minority view and a majority view. It's not like 
49-51, there's like a healthy majority and a minority. The minority view thinks that it was probably written around the time of Solomon, and their justification for this is there's more than they would expect of Aramaic words in the book. And that's basically it. That's their justification. The majority view, which includes the ancient rabbinical tradition, rabbinical tradition, which is all the rabbis, you know, before the time of Jesus, basically all attribute this book probably to Moses and written during the time, taking place during the time of the patriarchs, like during the time of Genesis. And there's a couple of indicators in the book for why that is probably when it was written, or at least takes place. One, there's no reference to the law, the temple, the tabernacle, or any of that sort of stuff. So it would lead us to believe that it probably takes place before the events of Exodus. And in the second to the last verse of the book, and I'm going to try not to spoil the whole thing for you, I'm going to take just a snip, but we get another hint. In Job chapter 42, verse 16, we get, after this, Job lived 140 years, and he saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. So after the events of the book, he lived another 140 years. We call those pre-flood numbers, all right? And the last thing I wanted to sort of nerd out about is that this book tries and I think does answer one of the most difficult and most frequently asked question in apologetics. And that question is, why do bad things happen to good people? Now, I air quoted good there because every time somebody asks me that question, especially if they're asking it as like a gotcha, they all have their own idea of what good is, and I'm going to spoil this for you, they all think they're good, every one of them. But in this case, we don't need air quotes, because we know Job is good. We know he's good because God tells us he's good. God says he is blameless, upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. So why do bad things happen to this good person? Now, I read a lot of commentaries preparing for this message, and I was really disappointed at how many of them say that we don't get an answer in this book. And I think that's very disappointing, because I do think we get an answer in the book. I think the problem is that the commentators are looking for a place in the book where Satan or an angel or God himself comes to Job and says, these bad things happened to you because you did X. But if that's the case, then we're trying to find out why bad things happen to a bad person. We know he's not a bad person. God said he's not bad. He said he's blameless. And I think we struggle with that sometimes because we have been told so many times that we've all fallen short, that we've all sinned. And that's true. But we've heard it so many times that when we hear God say that this man was blameless, what we immediately think is, well, blameless-ish. But there's a difference between being blameless and sinless. God doesn't say that Job never committed a sin. He's just saying that at the moment that the accuser is making the accusation in the heavenly court, that Job had repented, he had sacrificed, he had made himself right with God. There was nothing that Satan could accuse him of. And it's important for us to know that not all trials 
Not all tribulation, not all spiritual warfare, not all suffering is punishment. Sometimes it is. Sometimes we fall in short. Sometimes we have to be disciplined. But Jesus was tempted. Jesus was tried. Jesus was tortured. And he never did anything wrong. He never sinned. And I don't want to get lost in this book looking for what Job did wrong. I think we're going to miss the whole point. So I want to make sure before we get into it, we're looking for the right things. So before we get into the book that has much more beautiful analogies, I thought I'd throw mine out here. I want to give you the analogy of a blacksmith. So put your imagination caps on for a minute. And imagine a blacksmith in a forge, and he's getting ready to make a sword. And he starts with this hunk of iron, and it's raw and dull and shapeless and void, and it's basically useless. You could probably use it as like a doorstop or a paperweight, but that's about it. And he's going to take that iron, and he melts it down at super high temperatures. You can imagine this is not very comfortable for the iron. But then he's going to add some more stuff to the iron. He's going to pour that liquid metal. He's going to cast it into a mold. And when that liquid metal cools, it's not even iron anymore. It's become an entirely new thing. Now it's steel. And it's in the shape and the image of a sword. Now in Christianity, we call this justification. Proverbs 17.3 says... The crucible for silver, the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the heart. But the process doesn't stop there. Now, the blacksmith is going to take a grinding wheel and a stone, and he's going to continue to grind away metal off of this sword. Again, not comfortable for the sword. He's going to continue to grind and grind and grind, because what he's trying to do is he's trying to make this useless thing useful. And this is a lifetime process. In Christianity, we call this sanctification. But this process never ends. That sword's going to go out into battle, and it's going to get nicked and dinged up. And it's going to have to come back and get re-honed, re-sharpened over and over and over again. And it's not necessarily because the sword did something wrong. That is just the process of how a sword is made. That is just the process of how wine is made. Wine gets crushed, uh, grapes get crushed into wine. Uh, James chapter 1 verse, verses two, and, uh, 2 through 4 says, Consider it a pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work, so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. When we are asking why bad things happen to us, are we asking because we want to know why it happened? Like, why we did, like, did we do something wrong? Why is this happening? Or are we asking ourselves, why is this happening so I can see where this is going? I, want, I don't want to focus on the cause. I want to focus on the effect. Why are you doing this? Because I want to know how you're trying to make me better. And that's how I want to look at this while we're going through this book. Don't ask yourself what Job did wrong. Look at what God is turning Job into. 
okay? All right, if you checked out, now's the time to come back in. We're going to get into some verses here. All right, verses 1 through 5, we can pretty much skip over. Um, we get introduced to Job. He's from a place called Uz. Nobody really knows where that is, and it's not important to the story. Uh, he's a well-to-do guy. He has a lot of property, and he's considered to be the greatest man of the East. The author is trying to go out of his way to make sure that we know how good of a guy Job is. I really like the way he does it in the last verse or two here when he talks about he really shows how good Job is when he talks about him making sacrifices for his children, even if they don't know that they need it. Like he's not doing it as like a public display. He's just doing it because he fears God and he loves his children. So he's a very good guy. We're going to pick up in verse six where things start to get really interesting. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came with them. So we get this like courtroom type scene. And Satan is there. Worth noting, the proper noun for Satan in the Hebrew is used here. There's no ambiguity. This is the Satan, the evil one, Lucifer himself. Uh, the Hebrew word for Satan, it's actually Satan, but it translates to the accuser. Okay, so he's there to accuse people of wrongdoing. In verse 7, the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? We all know that God knows where he came from, right? God knows where he came from. Where have you come from? Satan answers the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth back and forth on it. That's a pretty ambiguous answer, don't you think? Kind of seems like he's hiding something. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Look at how quickly Satan responded about Job. He knows who Job is. Satan is not omniscient. He doesn't know everything like God does. He knows Job because he's been around Job, right? Does, God fear, uh, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? How would Satan know that he's got a hedge around his household? Because he's been trying to penetrate that hedge. He's been, getting, he's been poking at it. So that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand, strike everything he has, and surely he will curse you to his face, to your face. And the Lord says to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power, but the man himself do not, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Important to note here that God had to give permission for additional testing to be done. There was clearly some sort of hedge. He had some sort of favor with God. It seems as though Satan has been probing that hedge and be, being unsuccessful. Like, that's how I read those first few verses. Like, he shows up, and uh, God's like, uh, so what you been doing down there? And he's like, you know, no, nothing. It's been like walking around and stuff, you know, not really doing anything. And he's like, yeah, you haven't been messing with Job? Well, I mean, you got the hedge around the house. I mean, I can't get in there for anything. If you would take that down. 
So, uh, yeah, so let's talk about the first set of attacks here. The first set of attacks, we have raiders and supernatural fire and wind take his oxen, his sheep, his camels, and his children. Now, it can be real easy for us to sort of distance ourselves from that, right? Like, I don't have any oxen, I don't have camels, but if we take a step back and we look at what these things are from, like, in the abstract, we can see that the script hasn't changed very much. He attacks his property, his food, he probably sells those animals for money, his finances, his children, his personal relationships. These are things that we see getting attacked all the time. The script has not changed that much. So then Satan comes back to the Lord in Job chapter 2. On another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before him. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answers the Lord the exact same way. You know, just down there, you know, doing stuff, not really doing anything, like nothing you need to worry about. And then the Lord says the same thing. Have you considered my servant Job? He's like, I know you're down there messing with him. You're just going to pretend like you're not doing anything? You know what it reminds me of? And the parents in here are going to get this. But it reminds me, have you ever like walked into the kitchen and your kid is uh, standing there and as soon as you walk in, they do like one of these? And you're like, uh, what, you, what you got there, buddy? He's like, nothing, nothing. You're not holding something behind your back? Well, you never let me play with it anyway. Like, I never get a chance to do anything. You're always... That's what it seems like to me. Like, Satan is an eight-year-old petulant child, bullying as like an older sibling, picking on us. And he's picking on us because he's jealous that the younger sibling is going to grow up and get the inheritance that he doesn't get. And listen, he can poke and prod... He can push us down in the mud. He can bloody our nose. He can black our eye. But eventually, we will grow up and get that inheritance. All of his torment, all of his tricks are temporary. They're temporary. Let's not dwell on the temporary. Let's dwell on the eternal The infinite, infinite love, infinite grace, infinite joy. That's what we have to look forward to. Little siblings always grow up. Do we have any... It's going to go off the rails. Uh, Do we have any math majors or minors in here? Does anybody know what one... We got one? What's one divided by infinity? Zero. Zero. What's two divided by infinity? Zero. What's a million divided by infinity? If you spend one minute, one day, one hour, ten years, a thousand years on this planet, it approaches nothing compared to the infinite forever life we have when we leave here. No matter how much he tortures you for the time that we are here, it is temporary. It's all temporary. In Job chapter 2, verses 7 through 9, we see that Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. He afflicted Job with painful sores. 
from the soles of his feet to the crowns of his head. And then Job took a piece of broken pottery, scraped himself with it as he sat amongst the ashes. And his wife said to him, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. Now I'm going to defend Job's wife here for a minute. I think she gets a bad rap. You got to remember, she lost all her children too. She's having a hard time right now. So let's give her a little bit of grace. But let's take an abstract step back again and take a look at what these attacks are. They are attacks on his health. And then we see that his reaction from his wife and his friends are an attack on his self-esteem. He's been disfigured. They find him disgusting. We still have those attacks today. He attacks our health and he attacks our self-esteem. right into closing. Um, Worship team, you can start coming back up. I've closed the last, I think, three messages almost the exact same way, and God just keeps putting the same message on my heart over and over again, so I hope whoever needs to hear it, hears it. But I want to go back to that blacksmith analogy. When we are out in battle and we are getting dinged up, we do not have to wait for the blacksmith to bring us back to the forge and resharpen us. We can sharpen each other on the battle. Proverbs 27, 17 says, as iron sharpens iron, so one person can sharpen another. We are an army. God is preparing us all for battle together. And we don't have to wait for the great blacksmith. We can sharpen each other. So I encourage you today, if you don't already have people that you can trust, to help sharpen you, then we need to work on finding those people in our lives. We need to be those people for each other. All right, I'm going to pray, and we're going to get right back into worship. Father, as we leave here tonight, let us not look at our trials and tribulations and only think, what did we do wrong? But... Help us to look at what you are turning us into, what we are becoming because of it. How does this make us better and sharper and more in the image of Jesus? Help us to not dwell in the pain of the trial, but to look ahead so that we can see what good will come from it. Help us to not focus on the temporary, but to focus on the eternal, the infinite, let us sharpen one another and be the army that you need us to be in this time.